welcome back to the Sustainability Sus Podcast. My name is Annabelle. And I'm Han. And today we are super lucky to have the one and only Chloe Shawbrook joining us today. Hello, Chloe. How are you doing? Hello, uh, We haven't met. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And for everyone listening, well, look, if you don't know Chloe, then obviously you have been hiding under a rock because in the professional sense, she's the youngest member of parliament, the MP for Auckland Central, the Ooh. spokesperson for animal welfare, woo-hoo, territory education and drug law reform, and has done some incredible mahi for the Green Party. But we're here today to find out just more about you, Chloe, and just to have a good about all that kind of stuff and sustainability, how you approach it, especially as a young person, and your take on trying to be sustainable as a broke uni student. So, yeah, <laughs> let's have a yarn. Why not? So, do you want to start by telling us about your journey into politics and into sustainability? Oh my god. Um, so, where to start? Um, to, to put it in a nutshell. Um, I uh, when, when I'm talking I guess and I, when I'm asked by younger people particularly kids in high school like how do you become a politician um, my first response is always why do you want to become a politician <laughs> uh, but secondly um, it's I guess to outline that there was never any intention um, for me to fall down this very peculiar rabbit hole so um, I'm technically a high school dropout I, I left school and left home when I was 17 I started at the University of Auckland I'm studying a BA in originally philosophy and psychology. Uh, I have uh, what is known as dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia, but with numbers, um, but very mild, but still very, very annoying um, when you're dealing with like stats, which is basically what undergrad psych is. So I realized quite early on that psych was probably not my bag um, because it just firstly wasn't enjoyable, secondly it was too hard, and I could apply my skills elsewhere. So I kept on with philosophy um, and ended up taking on a law degree, which was never with the intention of being a lawyer. Um, I very much was an outsider <laughs> in my <laughs> law school. Um, you know, I went to law school with the guy who was the head of the Young Nats and now helps to run the campaign for the Conservatives in the UK. Um, so that's, you know, as an indication of, of, of where I was at um, and, and probably why I wasn't, you know, rubbing shoulders with all too many people. Um but that was always an alternative to doing um, postgrad in philosophy. Uh, while I was doing all of that, I was working at BFM for about four and a half years, cool. which is number one alternative radio station in Auckland. Um, oh, and yeah, there was when I was, um, I interviewed a bunch of politicians um, and kind of just was consistently frustrated by things uh, and was involved in starting, starting a few different uh, small businesses with my ex-partner um, of six years. So we ran our first um, gig was kind of a menswear label where we made stuff in Nelson and had a few small stockers around the country, got involved in um, helping to manage some artist mates uh, with like physical art and then gigs um, and a few other bits and pieces uh, and basically in 2016, end of 2015, start of 2016, um, my favourite music venue was shutting down, uh, which I came to realise was because of really poor planning regulations, mm-hmm. which meant that this kind of heritage music venue that had existed to enable small local like artists and musicians to get a foot in the door to establish an audience and all those other things uh, had not had protections put around it, which meant that a really cheap apartment block without sound insulation went in next door to it. Understandably, people complained about the noise and that was kind of the death knell for uh, what is known as the King's Arms Uh, and that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and I just got so pissed off and was talking to my mate Lillian uh, about it and she was like if you're going to complain about it 
just didn't do something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I Googled how to become the mayor of Auckland. Um, and <laughs> as you do. So um, wondering why you didn't win. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you had to be over the age of 18. Um, I was 22 at the time. I actually waited until I turned 22. So the um, final date that you had to have your enrollment forms in was the 4th of July. My birthday is 26th of June. So I was like, oh. I can't be the 21-year-old who's running. I'll at least be the 22-year-old who's running. Um, <laughs> I had to have two people nominate me if you're familiar with local body elections really interesting characters so I think that's kind of a sanity bar like two people in Auckland will vote for you um, and had to have 200 bucks for administrative fees so I could start back together um, and yeah that was kind of it I ran in the local body election in 2016 in Auckland uh, and ended up coming in third place with just less than 30,000 votes which um, yeah it was uh, it was quite mind-blowing to a number of the journalists who had totally just discounted me as mm-hmm. only like this protest vote mm-hmm. I'd spent a long time producing policies and um you know just solutions to all of these problems but also in trying to engage people in different ways and why local body elections yeah. and local government was important uh but the coolest thing was that we bet a dude who spent like over 100k um, <laughs> oh, yeah. on this campaign yeah whereas like we fundraised a few thousand dollars by selling ripoff vote for pedro shirts mm. so <laughs> would yeah. you say that a lot of the stuff that you were advocating for you'd learn in law school or at uni or just you'd um, down on your own accord really? I, I mean it, it definitely was um bringing together those skill sets of um like philosophy is all about you know like what what's the point and, mm-hmm. and why are we doing this and how do we interrogate this to the nth degree um and in that you know i'm my favorite philosopher is probably not somebody who would consider themselves well she explicitly doesn't it's hannah arendt who you know wrote about the banality of evil and how human beings are like we are so defined by our systems and our structures and our environments and our circumstances and we don't necessarily see beyond those sometimes as seeing ourselves as cogs in the machine yeah um Law, definitely useful, I guess, in terms of research, but it was probably the journalism background more than anything that was really useful. And I was also really conscious from the get-go that, like, I was 22. (laughs) Um, And, you know, anybody, but but also any politician who stands up there and is like, I know everything, is either lying to you or completely lacking self-awareness. So constantly being aware of the fact that, like, I will do more work in order to be considered as valid or as legit as they are, but also they don't by default because they're older or wear a suit get to be more legit than I am. So yeah, it just meant to a certain extent that I worked harder and then that made me over time slightly more confident in what I was saying, but like massive imposter syndrome as everybody has all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that, especially being a young person entering in to that election, you know, mm. that's crazy. Oh, and in 2017 um, as well during that uh, general election, which was wild as a Green candidate when, um, you know, you had obviously the like changeover in leadership in the Labour Party when Jacinda became leader and we had um, just the really abhorrent treatment of Meteria um, and just all of that stuff playing out and then trying to be like no one person is bigger than the co-papa <laughs> and yeah. also uh, having to defend who you are as an individual against people who are like attempting to character assassinate you it's quite a weird thing to be in in your mind yeah completely mm. and I guess that kind of leads on to like another question that we actually had lined up with mm. a bit further down but as a young person I feel like definitely I can resonate with this you know you might have grandparents or parents telling you hey no you actually can't have that opinion because mm. you're too young to have that opinion mm. and you just feel so invalidated to be passionate about something how do you respond to that and then experience it 
and the epitome yourself. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's funny because now, like, I just turned twenty-seven, um, <clears throat> and I feel so old compared to like <laughs> I. So, I, ten years ago, like, I dropped out of school, um, mm. and you know, I my little brother is fourteen, uh, and he's uh, the person who was responsible for me accidentally going viral for responding to Todd Muller when he called me. Um, uh, <laughs> but that's another thing, and like, uh, I I don't have TikTok. I've never had TikTok, um, but. Yeah, for me, it's always been um, like people throw back this idea of life experience. Like you've mm-hmm. got no life experience. Mm-hmm. What the hell do we mean when we talk about life experience? Because, yeah, you know, again, to interrogate it from the kind of fuck up of that as a piece of terminology, like you're talking about uh, more days on earth supposedly equates to greater ability to grapple with situations or to come up with solutions to it. Yeah. But you know, again, to play that out and to road test that as a concept, uh, more days on earth typically means, and again, very broad brushstroke, but we are operating inside of generalizations with the very, you know, fact that people are throwing that you have no life experience at you. Uh, more days on earth typically means that you've got to this point in your life where you uh, have found a routine. Yeah. Routine uh, is the antithesis of novelty. Novelty is actually what's important for experiences to build and yeah. for you to come up with creative and new ways of dealing with problems. But also if life experience was somehow the solution to all the problems that we face, like why is why are we at this like tipping point with climate change? Like why are we at this level of inequality? Why yeah. are we so um, you know, I think in kind of a very macro perspective, and again, it's a massive broad brush show as a generalization and it's unfair to apply this to everybody but you know when you're a younger person you have a tendency to throughout the chronology of your life look around and go what is this place where do I fit into Mm -hmm. it what's fair what's just and as you get older you begin to accumulate stuff you begin to therefore take things for granted about the way that the world works and you tend to err towards a want for conservation of that status quo because when you know the rules you can win at them yeah Um, and again that's broad brushstroke but It means that you have a stake in the way that things are. Yeah, definitely. Younger people typically don't. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to see you be able to respond to that to someone saying, excuse me, I dealt with okay, it a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, you know, like, what, what is it that you actually mean? Like, yeah. that you somehow, the more, like, for every five years, do you get this, like, magical juju that means yeah. that you are, like, more <laughs> capable? Of, yeah, because, yeah, you know, again, I, I can totally get that, you know, we, we're, particularly in terms of cultural norms, there is a greater level of respect that you pay to older people Mm. totally pay that but I also think that it's really messed up that we also completely overlook the literal life experience of younger people which is growing up in a world that like climate change is your retirement and you are told that you are not able to afford a home as you get older you are taking on tens of thousands of dollars with student debt to get a tertiary education that is valid life experience and that like that's what life experience is if we're talking about the experience of character or person and yeah mm-hmm. just I don't I don't get it so yeah basically throw it back at them yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for and I guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well Chloe should tell me yeah that. <laughs> well just the best the best way to do it is always be like but what do you actually mean by that like and and f- for what like yeah. are, you, are you telling me that because you're older you can solve all the world's problems well cool do it then yeah hard. yeah <laughs> Absolutely. I guess in terms of life experience and I guess after dropping out of high school but then mm. going to university, do you have any memorable university experiences? 
course, do you want to say to students? Sort of thing, uh, or? I mean, I guess probably actually one of the most memorable experiences that I have from uni is, is not a great one, <laughs> um, but it is worth sharing because, you know, I think that we operate and, and, you know, all these things that we've kind of talked about around uh, the precarious nature of life right now where people operate inside of a gig economy and are more likely to be renters, you're less likely to know your neighbours or your co-workers, which means that when you have an issue, you don't necessarily connect the dots that other people are experiencing this in a circumstantial way, yeah. but it's your problem, it's therefore a problem with you, mm-hmm. which, you know, results in, I would say, a large number of the problems that we have with regard to mental ill health. Um when I was in my final semester of uh, my law degree uh, and I was running two or three different small businesses at the time and was tapering off doing the radio show, I had this mad stomach pain and I thought that it was just my period because I'd always had massive issues with that and thought I had endo for a while. But um I ignored it and I was like, cool, still studying, still studying. And then I woke up the next morning and my boyfriend at the time, um, uh, he had gone to some job interview and I was like doubled over. I had to call my dad, went to emergency room. Uh, it turned out I had acute appendicitis and that it almost burst. I had to have two oh emergency God. surgeries. I was there for seven days, wow. couldn't eat for five days. It was gnarly. And I remember throughout that period being like, I'm so stressed that I can't check my emails right now. Yeah. Like I'm so stressed that I'm not responding to my emails. I'm not spinning all of these plates. I'm therefore everything's going to fall over. Mm-hmm. And I got out of hospital and like was slowly recovering and went back onto my emails. And one of the most profound lessons of my life is that nobody had really noticed. Yeah. And the thing to take away from that is we get so caught up in unintentionally being quite narcissistic or selfish or self-serving and that we think that we are the key to solving all of the world's problems. And that perversely puts us in a situation where we don't allow ourselves rest. And we Mm -hmm. think that, you know, we take on all this individual responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And that burns us out. And it's just actually quite selfish. (laughs) Uh, So realizing, and this is, I think, where, you know, through my experience in politics, not with a big P of parliament or political parties or whatever, but politics, which is power and relationships and communities and change building and capacity and all that other stuff, that's been very much an experience in uh, facilitating bringing people together and realizing that not one person has to front everything all the time yeah. and that resilience is not some like individual commodity that you can buy off of the shelf but it's something that you know is where you have a community where someone can step forward when somebody mm. else steps back yeah completely yeah. and about burnout how do you deal with burnout as a politician in the public light you know you've got <laughs> so many things yeah, yeah. everywhere how do you deal with that and being um, in the public image so much I, yeah I, I don't I don't know <laughs> um, I, I don't think I anyone do, knows yeah, yeah I don't I don't I, I think um, I think we have a really messed up um, way of looking again at change where we really over individualize and particularly inside of a parliamentary system like we presidentialize our politicians mm-hmm. and you know you see this playing out not just in you know New Zealand but in other jurisdictions with like AOC or like in the UK with Myrie Black of the SNP or you know in Australia my mate Jordan Steele John who's a senator over there a green senator the first ever disabled green sen- senator wow, entirely so they had to completely change the senate so that he could wheel his wheelchair in oh my God, um, that's crazy. but like 
that um, kind of sense of personal responsibility that you feel particularly occupying that space of privilege mm-hmm. um, is definitely something to to hold you to account in terms yeah. of doing the job. But it also should be a driver to kick the door down and let more people in so that the face of that institution changes, the nature of that institution changes so that the weight doesn't remain on one person's shoulders. Mm-hmm. But like the best piece of advice that I've ever got to this effect um, is actually from Marilyn Waring, um, who was the last young one since I, before I came in. She's responsible for blowing up the Muldoon government for crossing the floor on nuclear-free New Zealand and a raft of other things. Yeah. Um, she effectively said that like it's exhausting to get up every day and fight, yeah. uh, and the only thing that helps me reconcile uh, existing in this space is knowing that it's finite. Because, yeah. again, very like broad brushstroke, but I think there is this kind of scale or seesawing effect, particularly inside of parliamentary politics, where on a day-to-day basis you choose on the one side change or on the other side career. And if you opt to prioritize one of those two things, you deprioritize the other. Mm -hmm. So I can identify uh, and, you know, externally, you could probably also identify a number of politicians who choose not to take the risk of arguing or pushing for change because that risks them some status or claim to their career. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And something else that we had talked about here was that um, where would you say in terms of that, where your passions and maybe politics collide and maybe you having to advocate for something you actually maybe don't agree with Mm. or wouldn't be passionate about yourself you know that political space uh so i i very strongly believe everything's political so, um and, <laughs> and, and yeah but, and, but but what i mean by that is you know we in common vernacular uh you know so often i will encounter groups or people who will say you know i'm not political but um and then talk about an issue which is inherently political oh um you know like my bus timetable or the fact that my boss doesn't pay me enough or that my rental is really shit or, you know, all of these different things, which are actually about power, um, which are actually about social constructs and set up and like they can change, um, which again is all to do with how we collectivize, how we decide what our values are as a society or a community or whatever else. Um, But the kind of thing that I really didn't anticipate uh, being uh, involved in politically was actually drug law reform and mm-hmm. um, that's something that I uh, became increasingly angry about I guess yeah, um, I uh, really randomly uh, so after the 2017 election <clears throat> Julianne Genter who uh, is still a Green MP uh, she became a green minister and a minister can't progress a member's bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were looking around the caucus table because Jag, Julianne, had just had a member's bill before the election pulled out to uh, legalise medicinal cannabis. And uh, I was like, okay, I'll do it. I don't really know. I don't know what I'm doing, but okay. Um, and then it was like, you know, this random 23-year-old all of a sudden is engaged in this debate nationally about medicinal cannabis and what it is and whether, you know, how, how we regulate something something like that and yeah at that point in time the synthetics crisis was just starting to bubble up and uh, I just got increasingly more educated because again I felt like I couldn't engage in that debate if I wasn't across all of the detail and I feel a sense of obligation that when you're somebody who holds the privilege of that platform when you do get educated about something to then not begin to advocate for broader justice is just cooked. 
So, yeah, that was one of those things that I didn't expect to get massively political about. But that's cool though, right, because it shows that as become educated on mm. it, you can either change your opinion or develop mm. your opinion, and I think totally. it's really inspiring. I would really so love more people. politicians to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be really cool. <laughs> yeah, or even to, like, have the same opinions in public as they do in private, like, baseline. Mm. Do you think there is a difference between that and what is the in pass? Hugely, hugely. I can tell you for a fact, like, particularly on drug law reform, one of the things that frustrates me more than anything is – uh, that the opinions that politicians have in private are the opposite of what they express publicly. Do you think that's because they're kind of like aligned to what one party should believe? And what's because they're cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Like, what's the point of politics? Yeah. And then the the other thing that frustrates me is. Um, the uh, politicians who are like, I would like to do this, but. I have a 65-seat majority, uh, mm. which would enable me to do whatever I wanted to, but for some reason I'm constrained by my perception of what the public wants me to do. Yeah. And it's just like, again, what's the point? Yeah. If you have the ability to make change, you have the mandate to make the change, this is your shot, buddy. Okay. Yeah, like, no, I'm doing yeah. It's just empty words otherwise. Yeah, eh? yeah. so there's there's a lot of things that currently are frustrating me about politics. So we'll see how long I survive. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess one final thing, I guess after a lot of environmental studies and we see this whole clean, green New Zealand image, mm-hmm. what do you have to say about that? Do you have any opinions or thoughts? Or We owe ourselves more honesty than that. Yeah, um, yeah I just think, you know, if – we knew that that was not true, which we do. Why would we continue to yeah. to put out that rhetoric? Who are we kidding? Like, yeah. at a certain point, it becomes Orwellian and words don't have meanings anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think that we owe it to ourselves and not just to this, like, ephemeral notion of future generations, which is so often tossed around in mm-hmm. politics, but we owe it to ourselves to be honest about what's happening in our own backyard and to take responsibility for cleaning that up. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we, we do have a tendency in Aotearoa to look at other countries and to go, well, they're worse than us. Yeah. So, therefore, we're, we're doing not, a good job. Yeah, or we're not going to do anything. Like, we can rest on our laurels. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, if you're talking about the kind of clean green image in the context of um, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss, like what's happening in our oceans, like, you know, in Auckland Central, for example, uh, I am responsible. The, I'm responsible for a landmass that encompasses almost the entirety of the Hodaki Gulf within, yeah. like, it expands to um, Altea, Great Barrier Island um, from the city. And that means that I also feel a profound sense of responsibility for representing that ocean mass yeah, in for sure. Parliament. And it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. And if you think about the structures that we've established to supposedly protect it, like the Hauraki Gulf um, legislation has existed for 20, 20 or 21 years now. And uh, the Hauraki Gulf Marine Park Act mm-hmm. established the Hauraki Gulf um, Forum, which every three years is mandated to produce a report that says, things are getting worse, guys. But yeah, we're, yeah. we're not going to. And, you know, we had like the government's response to the sea change report from four or five years ago now, which was a hugely groundbreaking consensus between um, scientists and those who operate in Matsuranga Māori and Iwi and Hapu and like local representatives. 
uh, which said just completely end bottom trawling. Mm-hmm. And the government's response is, we'll have some trawling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is this? Like, who's in your ear? And, yeah. the, and then, you know, Eugenie um, Sage, former um, Minister of Conservation, my colleague, asks Minister Parker in the House, like, what's that about? Why are you still doing trawling corridors yeah. uh, when, you know, you have all of the science and actually consensus, which was recommended to you to completely end it? And then there's some real opaque uh, obfuscating about how this is to do with science. Science. It's like, it's like scientific <laughs> whaling. Yeah. Like it's not, not real. Yeah, exactly. It's not a thing. It. It's not. We know the, the the effects of that thing. So yeah, I just I I can't understand how we how we pretend that to ourselves anymore. Particularly when we're proactively and get like the you know the, there's been mining permits issued yeah. in the Coromandel and conservation areas. I don't know why we're not more angry and organized about legal? this. <laughs> well, no, but it's, it's, it's now entirely legal because yeah. Eugenie turned it down when she was minister, associate minister for the environment, minister for conservation, and then it got put to two Labour Party ministers and they approved it. And it's like, crazy. now it's happening and it's totally legal. Oh, same, same, Putiki Bay, like what's happening right now uh, yeah, with the, um, the marina development, like you've got Little Blue Penguins, Kororoa, uh, at threat, you have um, a rahui that was placed at the start of this year, which is like, don't touch within this area because it's not good for Taonga species. Uh, you've got uh, the Horaki Gulf Forum mentioning in their most recent report from a few years ago that ocean sprawl is hugely problematic for the ocean floor and... <laughs> We're still going ahead with building yeah. this like marina, marina. yeah, and a literal it. floating car park. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like I, yeah, I, yeah. I have no, I have no answers. Like, and again, people like it's legal, and I'm like, so were so many bad things. Yeah. It was legal for like gay people were illegal, women yeah. voting was illegal, like society changes and that's a good thing yeah, and we definitely. shouldn't just cling to this notion that this is the way things are like the law is not some stone tablets passed to us by some deity it's man-made and that gives us a sense of responsibility yeah, to change it to change it completely yeah. and it's got to be updated to update with societal change right mm-hmm. you can't just stay stay mm-hmm. on the pile back in the past Come on. Totally. Oh, hey, look, Chloe, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio, and we've loved being able to chat with you. So, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun to be in Dallas. Absolutely. Woo! Cool. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool.